Lord's Prayer. Well, <clears throat> that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We've been talking about, you know, going through Matthew, going through chapter 5 and all the Beatitudes, and now we're here in chapter 6. And last week, I just kind of did an overview on prayer. Jesus gets into um, this prayer that he wants to teach his disciples, and I thought, you know, this topic is so big prayer and so important that I wanted to just kind of do a general overview of what we did last week. And now today we get into the Lord's Prayer. Um, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, in wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we've forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray that the God to the God that made us. Now, that's certainly something that could be said today of our nation, unfortunately. But it was actually said by Abraham Lincoln at the proclamation of a national day of humiliation and fasting and prayer in 1863. Not humiliation in the way that we normally think of it, but a time to take stock of our lives and take a look at the nation as a whole and how it compares to the holiness and the goodness of God. And even back then, Abraham Lincoln was looking at the state of our culture and saying, we have lost our way. We are not pointed towards God. We need a time that's set aside to focus on him and steer our hearts back to the Lord. Because ever since Adam's sin in the garden, um, man has been marching steadily away from God. He hasn't moved. But what has happened over time is if God is there and we stand here and culture's over there, as culture has continued to shift, the church has kind of slid this way. And we're still the same distance from culture, but culture keeps sliding. And so we feel like we're the same distance away, but we're getting further from God. And that's kind of what he's saying. Church, we have to get back to God. And it takes effort and it takes intentionality to do this because we can either march with the culture or we can get carried along by, you know, the current. And if we get carried along with the current of culture, we're going to end up in the same place. Um, But it takes effort and intentionality to go the opposite way. Kind of like the fish in the chosen, right? They're swimming against the current, against the way that everybody else is going. And the primary way that we swim against the current and back towards the Lord is through prayer. And just like in marriage, In marriage, if you do nothing, the tendency is to go like this. You just drift apart just naturally. Uh, The business of life just simply moves you away from, uh, from everything. On Tuesday nights... Tuesday nights are our date night, so we rarely schedule anything on Tuesday nights because that's Alicia and I's time together. And if we don't get our time together, then we get a little off because life just tends to take us in separate directions. We're both, you know, involved in a lot of stuff, kind of busy, um, and it will take us in other ways if we let it. And before long, uh, we're going to find ourselves out of touch and maybe even in a bad spot. And if we make that a, a habit, it's going to lead to some really bad areas. And if we neglect time praying with the Lord, if we neglect time in his word, we're going to find ourselves out of relationship, out of touch with the Lord. Prayer is what tethers us to him. It's what keeps us pointed towards the Lord and close to the Lord when we're talking to him in prayer. 
And last week, as I mentioned, we talked about prayer generally, but today we have a specific example that Jesus gives to us. And in in Jesus' day, the people, as well as his disciples, were a little confused about prayer. And it wasn't that they didn't have prayers. I mean, they had lots of prayers, prayers for every occasion. Um, They prayed when they woke up. They prayed when they went to bed, before meals, before they traveled, all of that. And then they had prescribed times of prayer. They prayed at 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m. every day, no matter where you were, you stopped and everybody prayed together. But it had become, over time, it had become kind of ritualistic. It had become going through the motions. And Jesus has been talking to them up to this point about hypocrisy. Don't practice your religion. Don't practice your righteousness like the Pharisees do because everything they do is for outward appearance, just for the approval of men. It's not for the approval of God. And, you know, if it's me, I'm thinking, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be like the religious people. I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. But we do things sometimes without even knowing, which is the reason why Jesus gives this example. Um, I thought of this silly example, okay? Uh, We have six kids. And I did the math once. I've changed a lot of diapers, like thousands of diapers, okay? And one of the best things about having babies is, is like the onesies, right? You get all these onesies and, okay, so they have the snaps, you know, at the bottom to give you easy access to these diapers, except that the worst part about changing diapers are the blowouts, right? The blowouts. Well, if you've ever noticed, this took us until kid number six. Nobody told us. I'm telling you, save you, kids, lots of time and aggravation, you know how onesies, they're snaps at the bottom, but then they're kind of scooped at the top like this. They're kind of made weird. It's not just like a t-shirt at the top. You know what that's for? So when they have blowouts, you can just take them down over their shoulders and take their arms out and take it down from the bottom. I didn't know that. I'm always like trying to get it up over their head, you know, and stuff's everywhere and you got to take them to the sink and wash them off. That's what that's for. My whole life I've been doing it wrong. I didn't even know. Nobody told me. Silly example. But I had been doing it wrong, and I didn't know. And, you know, in that time, prayer was not being done in a God-honoring way. And so Jesus says, let me give you an example of how to do it rightly. So this is our text this week. It's going to be the same as it was last week. Uh, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward, but when you pray, go in your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will he forgive you. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about our religious acts as it pertains to other people, how about how we take care of the needy, how we give to the poor. And then next week, ah, uh, next week, next week, we're going to talk about our religious acts as it pertains to ourselves in fasting. Fasting, yay. <laughs> but this week, what we're talking about is our religious acts towards the Lord, and that is praying. It's been said that prayer is like the spiritual heir to the believer, And it is crucial, it's vital. If we want to live the way Jesus did, then we need prayer. 
Okay, I have bullet points this morning. They all start with P. So hopefully it makes it easier to remember. Either that or you're going to be more confused. But help, hopefully as we go through the Lord's Prayer, this will make sense and help you view it in, uh, in the right way. So what is God's purpose in prayer? First one is God's purpose. What is his purpose in prayer? Well, true prayer, just like true worship, puts God at the center. He becomes the focal point. It's not to focus on man. It's not even to focus on our needs. It's to make God central. And when we pray, it's really important that we keep God central because if we don't, then we have a tendency, at least I do, to get God on the phone and tell him all the things that I need, all of my selfish desires and things that will make me comfortable and then hang up the phone, right? And when my kids call me, like they don't call me, it's texting, right? Everything's texting. And when they call, I'm like, something's wrong, right? Because they don't call. But when they do call, I love to hear their voice. But if they just started in and said, hey, dad, um, listen, my car needs an oil change. And, you know, if I, if I could, you know, get some, you know, money for gas, that would be great. And I'd really like to have this for dinner. And, oh, by the way, I'm going here. So I just wanted to let you know. I wouldn't feel like much of a father in that situation because it's not about relationship. It's just about getting their needs met is what they're after, right? And sometimes we do that with the Lord. Now, I love meeting my kids' needs. I love that, but I do it because we have relationship. We're in relationship, and the Lord loves to provide for his kids, but he also wants to have a conversation. He doesn't want to, to just simply dial him up, tell him all of our stuff, and then hang up the phone. Paul tells the Romans, actually, in 826, that sometimes we don't know how to pray the way we ought to. Like, we don't. Um, We want to pray, we talk to the Lord, but there are times where we just don't even have the words to speak. Um, And I said this last week, sometimes the only things I could pray is Jesus. Like, just, or or you are good, right? I would say the same thing. All I can say is that, because I don't know how to pray in that moment. I don't know the words to speak. But it says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. Thank goodness. Because sometimes, and I said this at the end last week, God can pick sense out of our, um, you know, nonsensical prayers. Out of our confusion, he understands our heart. He understands what we're saying. But a lot of times, we don't. (laughs) And so that's why Jesus gives us this model of how to pray with right motives. And it's kind of a roadmap, if you will, to relationship with the Father. And he says, when you pray, pray this way, or pray in this manner. So there is value um, in praying the Lord's Prayer literally. Obviously, there is value in that. But our tendency is to take things like this and turn them into a formula. And then it becomes a ritual. Things that we say over and over again, and we don't even really give much thought to it as we're saying it. Um, Kind of like, you know, Bible reading plans. Is anybody halfway through their Bible reading plan for the year? <laughs> or is, are, who's stuck in Leviticus? <laughs> That's where we get stuck in those ones. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then what happens is you sit down and you're like, ah, I'm behind. So, you know, I got, you know, I got 10 minutes. So I'm going to crank through this. And it's checking the box. And it's not about spending time with the Lord or listening for his voice and what he wants to say to you that day. <clears throat> So what Jesus is giving his disciples here is an outline that balances God's glory with our need. God's glory with our need. And it always starts with recognition of who God is. Uh, It's not trying to get God to agree with us. It's not, you know, trying to persuade him to meet our selfish desires. It's affirming his sovereignty and seeking to conform our will to his will for his purposes and for his glory. So that's God's purpose in prayer. Now, Jesus starts off by talking about God's paternity. 
He calls him Father, God's paternity. And by calling him Father, he is acknowledging who he is. Now, this is somewhat second nature to those of us that have been in church like all of our lives to call him Father. But for the, for the people in that day, this would have been something very unfamiliar, uh, but it shouldn't have been because in Isaiah 63, 16, we read, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And Jeremiah 31, God says, I am a father to Israel. This is the type of relationship that Jesus wants to have and that the Lord wants to have with us. The word that Jesus uses here for father is the word Abba, not Abba, but Abba. It's an intimate term. Um, This describes a child's relationship with his father. It's still reverent. It's still reverent, but it speaks of an intimacy. And here's the importance with that. When we have the knowledge of God as our father, it means the end of fear. It means the end of fear because perfect love casts out all fear. He loves us perfectly. He is our father. If you think about it, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they served their gods in fear. They were terrified of the gods that they served. They only did things to appease their gods so they wouldn't do something bad to them or to try to bribe them to get something from them. So this means the end of fear. Most unsafe people have a distorted view of God, a warped sense of God. They, think, they only think of God of the Old Testament that's full of wrath and lightning bolts, right, and judgment. Um, or they think of a God who started this world, started the universe, and then disappeared. He's kind of like an absentee landlord, and they have that perception of God. But here's what the knowledge of God's fatherhood does. First, it settles uncertainties. I could use some certainties in my life. It settles uncertainties and it gives us hope. Multiple times, Jesus would tell a story and at the end of it, he would say, how much more will your heavenly father provide for you? He talks about fathers in human terms and he says, how much more will your heavenly father provide for you? So it settles uncertainties. Knowing God as father should also settle all selfishness. Uh, If you listen to this prayer, there are no I's or me's in this prayer at all. It's our, our father, right? There is no I or me. We hold up what is best for everyone, not just ourselves. This is actually to be prayed corporately. Yes, we pray it individually, but pray it corporately as well. That helps us settle all selfishness. And knowing God as father should also settle the matter of resources, Uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And the problem is sometimes we pray for the big things, right? We'll pray for big things, but we leave out the little things because we think God's not really, you know, he doesn't really concern himself with the little details of our life. Or we pray for the little things, but we don't ask God for the big things, either because we don't want to have high expectations or we think, You know, that's just not something that he's going to be able to do for me. But God cares about the details of our life. He cares about the big things, and he wants us to bring him all of it because neither one is difficult for God. Uh, There was a song that we sang back in, you know, 90s, right? Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for you. And that's true. Nothing is too difficult for God. It makes no difference whether it's big or small. His resources um, are not um, finite. They're infinite. And lastly, knowing God as Father settles the matter of obedience. Jesus said, I came to do the will of my Father. I only do the things that I see my Father doing. And if Jesus came to do the will of his Father, then we should be about doing the will of our Father. 
Obedience really is the hallmark of relationship. Uh, If you're in relationship with the Father, then obedience should follow suit. Uh, One time Jesus was talking to a big crowd, and a bunch of people were around him. They were all listening, and he's talking about the kingdom. And his mom, his family, comes to see him. They need to get a hold of him. They want to talk to Jesus. But there's all these people and they can't get to him. So they start passing word up. They're like, listen, tell Jesus that his mom and his brothers and sisters are here to see him. We need to get a hold of him. And so word gets passed up to Jesus and somebody says, hey, sorry to interrupt, but your mom and your family is back here. They need to talk to you. And this is what Jesus says. He says, hey, these are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does the will of my father is my mother and my brother and my sister. Ouch. (laughs) Now, he wasn't trying to be disrespectful of his family. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful of his mother, but what he was doing is explaining, hey, this kingdom family is so much bigger than you think it is. And if you're part of the kingdom, if you're part of the family, then the expectation is there's going to be obedience to what the Father asks us to do. Okay, after God's paternity, we move on to God's priority. God's priority, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is an old word. This is probably the only time I've ever heard it used in this scripture right here. But we have a pretty good sense of what it means. Even though we have access to God, and even though we can approach him as Father, um, he still deserves reverence, still deserves our respect. It's more than just a title. Um, He's not our sky daddy, okay? We don't use irreverent terms for the Lord. He is our father, but we still need to be reverent and hallow his name. And to hallow his name is to honor and glorify and obey. Again, these are things that start in our hearts. They need to live in our hearts if we're going to live them out. And his name is most hallowed when we, be, when we behave in accordance with his will. Now, this is interesting. You've heard me say this a bunch of times, that names in the Bible are significant. Names and numbers have meaning, um, and they speak to more than just somebody's title, more than just what we call them. It's about their character, who they are. And so when we hallow God's name, we're talking about having a holy reverence for all that he is, for his character. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, what we're really after is the character of the Lord. We call upon the Lord, we're asking for all that he is and all that he stands for. In Exodus 34, Moses has to go back up the mountain because he just came down and he found all the children of Israel fleshing out around a golden calf. And he takes, he takes the Ten Commandments and he smashes them on the ground. Now, I have to wonder if he came down and he thought, you know, these people aren't deserving of these commandments and he smashed them on the ground. Or if it was one of those situations, like I do, where he smashed them and then he was like, uh-oh. Right? <laughs> Anger got the best of me there. But he has to go back up the mountain and meet with God um, so he can get new tablets. And it says this in Exodus 34, 4 through 6. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning. This is amazing. People that were obedient and followed God, it always says they rose early in the morning. Joseph woke early in the morning. Moses got up early in the morning. Abraham got er up early in the morning, it tells us time and time again. First thing, priority. And he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. So when he proclaimed his name, he was proclaiming his attributes. 
Psalm 27 says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. We trust in who he is, and we hallow hallow his name by having a true knowledge of who God is, discovering and believing the truth about him. And we do that through reading the word. I talk about reading the Bible a lot. That's how we learn about God. How can we reverence a God that we don't know anything about? If we don't know what his character's like, if we don't know what he's like, how can we truly hallow and reverence his name? Because once we get to know him, we, we will want to honor him by lining up with his will. Now, in light of that, um, here's an interesting thought that I had. If we live in disobedience to the Lord, right, but we pretend like we're Christians. So we say we're Christians, but we're living in disobedience. Are we taking his name in vain? Always think about taking his name in vain as cursing, right? Saying a bad word, using his name when we're cursing. But if we're calling on the name of the Lord on Sunday, and then we're living, you know, like hell the rest of the week, are we taking his name in vain, one of the commandments that was written on those stone tablets that he smashed. <clears throat> if we're living in disobedience, do we really even know him? One of the most sobering portions of scripture we're going to come to here in a couple weeks in Matthew 7, 721 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And the Lord will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Relationship. And we'll expound on that more in a couple weeks. But this is serious business. Uh, We can't just call him Lord. He needs to be Lord of our lives. And we have to hallow his name by living in obedience to his will. Okay, God's priority and now God's grand plan. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The greatest desire of a believer should be to see our king ruling and reigning on the earth, to see his kingdom being fulfilled. And we should want everything to be made right, and that can only happen when he's ruling and reigning on the earth. We want him to come back and claim all of the authority, all of the honor that have always been his. To pray for his kingdom to come is for God's grand plan to be fulfilled in our life and in the world. In all things, we pray that his will would be done. Um, If the subject to our prayers is always us, then what we're really praying is that our will would be done. We need to pray for God's will to be done. And if we're simply praying for our will to be done, then we need to grow up in our faith. We need to grow up and mature in our faith. Uh, Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. This is Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, Devin's my son and he's always going to be my son. But if I walk into his room and he's playing with tinker toys and looking at picture books, I'm going to be a little concerned. He's grown up. We need to grow up. We need to mature in our faith as Christians. So we make prayer requests, and we should pray. We should pray for um, our situations. We pray for other people. But what we're praying for is that God's kingdom would be manifest and his will would be done in and through them. What we're asking for is that God's kingdom be displayed in that person or in that cause. Remember, we're not bossing God around. We don't tell him what to do. If we ever hear somebody praying like they're bossing God around, then they're, they're off the mark. 
they're missing the point because it's not us. It's about his will being done. They're praying that their kingdom would come and their will be done. Does that make sense? In all things, we pray that his will would be done. So why do we pray that his kingdom would come and his will be done? Because as you might have noticed, the world is out of control. It is out of control right now. This is the craziest time in my life that I have ever lived. And if my grandfather was still alive, he would say, this is the craziest backwards time that we have ever lived. Now, God's kingdom isn't ruling and reigning on the earth the way it is in heaven right now. It's not. Now, God can assert his will anytime he wants in history. He's God. He can do that. But we're told that the devil is the God, small g, the God of this world. And it's under his influence and his control. But there will be a day when this world, which is in opposition to his kingdom, will be set right. The millennium. That thousand-year reign that gets ushered in after the tribulation where he is ruling and reigning and we are reigning with him on the earth. That's when everything is going to be made right. There's no more influence, no more control from the devil because he has been bound. And we're going to see what it's like to live in a perfect world where his will is being done. That's what we're praying for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not just a godlier society here on earth. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying for the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Remember, we're to be like salt and light. Salt preserves. But sooner or later, it's going to decay. It's going to rot. But we slow the process. And we slow it because God is patient. It's his patience. It says that, um, sorry, Second Peter is where it is, where it says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what he wants. And so we, as his representatives on earth, act as a preserving agent, slowing the decay so more people can hear about Jesus and more people can come to salvation. Some people believe that we can manifest God's kingdom here on earth through our efforts. But that's just simply not true. We can expand by bringing more people into the kingdom. But we're not going to manifest that kingdom until he comes back. In Luke 18, Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, right? And Pilate asks him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom's not, if, if my kingdom was of this world, my disciples would be routing right now. They would be rioting. But my kingdom is not of this world. Clearly, God's will is not being done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're praying his kingdom come, praying for Christ's return. And we're not looking for an event. There's a lot of talk. It's very entertaining to talk about who the Antichrist is going to be and where he's going to come from. But for the believer, it doesn't matter because we're not going to be here. We are going to be gone. So it doesn't matter. We're not looking for an Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. That's who we're looking for. We're not looking for an event. We're looking for his return. But until then, we need to line up with his divine will. And we live in a righteous rebellion. You know you guys are part of a rebellion? We're part of a righteous rebellion. I think that would be a cool idea for our next t-shirts. Join the righteous rebellion. We're in rebellion to the world systems and uh, the influence and control that Satan has over it. And if we're lining up with the agenda of the world, then we've made a truce with the enemy, at least in that part of our life. And we don't need to make truce with the enemy in those parts of our lives. We need to live in righteous rebellion. And a lot of Christians make that mistake. I've made that mistake in my life where I want my opinions, my will to be done and not the Lord's will to be done. We pray thy name, thy kingdom, thy will, and it all focuses on him. So we have God's purpose, 
God's paternity, God's priority, his grand plan, and now that brings us to God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is probably one of the most overlooked elements in the Lord's Prayer. Um, you know, as Americans, why should we pray for more of what we already have so much of, right? In my cupboard at home, I've got loaves of bread. I have bagels. I have hot dog buns. I have hamburger buns. I have bread mix that you put in that bread machine that we don't use. We have frozen dough in our freezer. We have so much bread. Why would I pray for more bread? Well, bread, of course, is symbolic. Uh, It's the substance that we're praying for. Uh, It represents not just food, but all of our physical needs. Uh, It's truly amazing to me that God wants to meet all of our physical needs. He wants to provide for us. And when we put it in that context, it's applicable for every single person. Whether we're well-fed or whether we could use a little bit more, God provides all of our needs. Now, it's a request, but we're also affirming that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. Everything we have comes from him. And if there's substance, then that means that there's a source. This really hit home for me this week as I was preparing, and I thought, you know, God provided for man before he even got here. He provided everything that Adam was going to need before he even created him. Adam was God's pinnacle of his creation. It was the last thing that he created, but he had provided everything for him before he even brought him along. And now once sin entered the picture, it became exponentially more difficult because while God provided all the resources, now we were going to have to do a lot of the work to bring that about because of sin. But he provided all of it. Not always the way that we would like him to, not always the way that we would expect, but he doesn't forsake us. He doesn't leave us. Like that old hymn, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That hymn, really, that hymn is a, is a hymn of thanksgiving. Um, as we sanctify or make holy what he's given us when we receive it gratefully. When we're grateful, we sanctify all of the things that he provides for us when he meets all of our needs. Um, as a parent, it makes my heart happy when I provide for the needs of my kids and they are grateful for it, right? But if we provide things for our kids and they kind of sneer at it, kind of look down their noses at it, that makes us think twice about wanting to offer it again, right? But when we give it and they accept it with gratitude, that makes us, uh, that makes us happy. And it's important to recognize our need, Uh, We need to recognize our need, that God provides for all of our needs. Because if we don't, then we fall into pride, saying, I did this. I provided for myself. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. But God provided everything we need, all every opportunity, every situation he brought about. There's a story told of uh, two ducks and a frog. And they would hang out at a farmer's pond, and they played together, and they, um, you know, would talk all day. Um, And then one day, as the summer heat came along, the pond started to dry up. And it became apparent that they were going to have to leave and find a new home. Well, this isn't a problem for the ducks, right? They can just fly off. But it was a real problem for the frog. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. And the frog says, hey, I know. Why don't we take a stick? You guys hold it in your bills, right? And I'll hang on with my mouth. I'll grab it. And then we'll all fly off together and we'll find a new home. And so They fly off. It works really well. In fact, it works so well that the farmer comes outside. He sees the two ducks flying in the sky with the, you know, frog attached by his mouth. And he's like, well, that's a clever idea. I wonder who thought of that. And the frog said, I did. (laughs) Pride comes before a fall. He wanted to take credit for the idea. We need to see our need. We didn't do it all on our own. It's kind of like the turtle. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. He had a little help. 
We don't fall into pride. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus also told his disciples, I am the bread of life. We get fixated, honestly, on the material a lot, and we neglect the spiritual. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We like to enjoy God's blessings, but sometimes we aren't always into relationship, and that's what he's after. When Jesus fed the 5,000, his disciples, Jesus told his disciples, we're going to go over to the other side of the lake. This is when the storm came up, right? And he came cruising along, moonwalking on the water. And, you know, they were freaked out. It's important to point out. Jesus said, let us go to the other side. He didn't say, let us go halfway. So we're going to go all the way to the other side, even if there's a storm. But some of the people saw him taking off. This is right after he fed the 5,000. They see the disciples get in the boat. They see Jesus take off. And so they raced to the other side because Jesus was a pretty good meal ticket. He just fed everybody. And so they run over there. Listen to what it says in John 6, 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Kind of like, hey, fancy meeting you here. They had raced to the other side on purpose. Jesus answered, very truly, I say to you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one that he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Those who come to Jesus will be satisfied physically, but more importantly, they'll be satisfied spiritually. And how often do we need to ask for this physical and spiritual provision? Daily. Every single day. Okay, God's provision, and now that gets us to God's pardon. God's pardon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I read a post this week that said, when it came to my salvation, God and I both contributed. I contributed all the sinning, and he contributed all the forgiving. The most important spiritual need we have is forgiveness uh, because sin separates us from God. Problem with the world is they don't want their sin cured. They, They don't even call it sin. They glory in their shame and they don't want their sin cured. And in a few verses, Jesus is going to start talking about being generous with each other. And he says this, he says, if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, every unsaved person has darkness inside of them. The problem is they think they're good people. And you hear this, I'm a good person. Why do I need religion? Why do I need God? That's darkness, but they think it's light. And Jesus says, how great is that darkness? Those people are very difficult to reach because they don't see their need. They don't see their need for forgiveness. Our eyes have to be opened by the Holy Spirit to realize our sin and our need for forgiveness. Then once we've accepted Jesus, once we've accepted his sacrifice and forgiveness of sins and we have his righteousness, we've been saved from the ultimate penalty of death, but we still have the presence of sin. We've been delivered of the penalty of sin, which is death, but we still have the presence of sin, which contaminates us all the time. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, um, it was his 
uh, example to the disciples of how we should serve each other, how we should, you know, love each other. But it was also an illustration concerning the continual cleansing that we need of our sin, the daily contamination of this world and the sins that we continue to commit. Um, at the houses, they would have bowls and they would have water and towels. And it was part of their ritual, part of what they did when they would, before they would go into a house, they would wash their feet. And they would wash their hands and they would do this all the time. It became, you know, something they did multiple times a day. But at the Last Supper, apparently, they neglected to do this. Disciples just marched in. They didn't wash their feet. And so Jesus takes this as a teachable moment to show them, this is how you should serve one another. I'm going to be the servant of all to wash your feet. You guys need to be a servant, but also symbolic that you guys are contaminated daily and you need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. And if you remember, um, you know, it implies this, it implies confession, Really, we have to confess. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Feet that are not presented to Christ cannot be washed. I'll say that again. Feet that are not presented to Christ cannot be washed. Remember when it was Peter's turn and Jesus got to Peter and Peter says, no way. No way you're washing my feet. I'm the servant. You're the master. And Jesus says, Peter... If you don't let me wash your feet, then you, then you have no part with me. You need to have that daily contamination taken care of daily. And Peter says, so funny, Peter went from, you're not washing my feet, to, okay, then wash my hands and wash my head also. Give me a bath, Jesus, if that's the way it is. Jesus says, calm down, Peter. <laughs> calm down. Those who have had a bath only need to have their feet washed. Their whole body is clean and you're clean. You're saved. You've been saved. You're saved from the penalty of sin, but you're not saved from the presence of sin. You get contaminated daily. So you need to let me wash your feet symbolically that you need to confess your sins. You need to be forgiven of those daily things that we commit. But there's a big prerequisite, big prerequisite. You'll be forgiven only if you forgive others. You have to forgive others or you will not be forgiven. Unforgiveness is a barrier between us and God's forgiveness. Not only that, but it also robs us of our peace of mind, of our happiness and our joy here in the now. Um, Even the health of our bodies. There have been so many different studies um, performed over what bitterness and unforgiveness does to your body physically. And Johns Hopkins just did another one that says, they said this, chronic anger puts you into a fight or flight mode which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels, leading to improved health. Even the secular world understands the power of forgiveness and how beneficial it could be. But we need it if we're going to be forgiven. Jesus told the Pharisees, hey, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. The person who realizes the debt that they've been forgiven is going to be generous with other people. We've been forgiven a debt that we could never repay. You remember the parable of the wicked servant, the guy who could not, the king, you know, pulled his servant in and wanted to give accounts and he had a debt that he could not repay. And the king said, throw him in prison. But he fell at the feet of the king and begged for forgiveness. And the king had mercy on the servant and forgave him this huge debt that he could never repay. And so then he left and he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a little bit of money 
and he couldn't pay, so he starts choking him and throws him as jail. And so they go and tell the king, hey, this guy that you forgave, this huge debt, went out and threw his buddy in jail that owed him just a little bit of money. So the king calls him in. He's like, hey, I did this for you. You couldn't forgive this small thing. Now I'm putting you in jail. Oh, and by the way, you're not getting out until you can pay every penny, which he couldn't pay it in the first place. How's he going to pay it when he's in jail? He's not going to. We've been forgiven a huge debt. We need to, in turn, forgive all the people that have hurt us. And if we're holding on to unforgiveness, gang, so serious, we're not going to be forgiven. That's why it's such a deal breaker. Um, And that means it's a commandment. People bring judgment on themselves when they choose not to forgive. Okay, God's pardon, and lastly, God's protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Living in a sinful world is going to be full of temptations, and we all need as much help as we can get. Uh, But the first time you read this, you might think, well, wait a minute, Nathan, doesn't it say in James that God doesn't tempt anyone? Why are we praying, keep us from temptation when it says that, or lead us not into temptation when it says that God doesn't tempt anyone? So it seems like these two are in conflict with each other. Now, from time to time, God will lead us into times of testing. He will allow trials in our life, but testing and trials are to make us grow in our faith. They're to make us better. There's a big difference between testing and temptation. That's why Paul said, count it all joy, brothers, when we encounter trials of all kinds, because the testing of our faith produces endurance. Testing and trials are to make you better. Temptation is to bring you down, to make you fall. God's never going to tempt you. But this prayer is for protection from the enemy. God, keep me away from situations where the temptation to sin is increased. I don't want to be in those situations. This is not a suspicion of God. It's a suspicion of me. I'm weak. I need strength. I don't trust Nathan's strength in a temptation that I'm going to make it through. I want to have a heart that desperately wants to stay away from evil and all the trouble that it creates. I'm weak. I need his strength. Lord, we need you to provide what I don't have. I need strength in the trial, and I need protection from sin. Nathan is inadequate to deal with it on his own. I need the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I need the Holy Spirit's help to recognize the escape so that I can endure it. That's what we're praying for. We're praying, Lord, deliver me from that moment. I don't want to be in situations where I'm going to be tempted. I need your help. Please please provide the way of escape, and may I recognize it so that I can endure. Now, sometimes, sometimes at the end of this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we hear this, this phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right? Well, it's not in the ESV. In the earliest manuscripts of Matthew, it, it actually doesn't include that phrase. But it's a beautiful truth that we declare in this prayer. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, uh, Solomon is now being anointed the next king of Israel, right? King David is still alive, but while he's still alive, he's going to pass the torch on to Solomon. And David stands up in the assembly, and these are some of the last words that we have from David. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. 
It's a beautiful truth that we need to remind ourselves of. Um, It gets added to the end of this prayer, uh, but it's a beautiful truth. Okay, here at the end, we have what I'll call God's postscript, God's PS, where he goes back to forgiveness. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. So he returns to forgiveness at the end of all this. He amplifies it by coming to it again. All of these things are important, but our greatest need is forgiveness. Can't be part of the family without it. You want to be part of the family? You got to forgive. An unforgiving spirit is inconsistent with the saint that's been totally forgiven. And it brings justice instead of mercy. Uh, Don't forfeit the blessing by not forgiving. James 2.13 tells us, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's an old story of us, um, it's an old Spanish story, actually, of a father and a son that had become estranged. And the son had left, he had run away, and the father had looked for him desperately for months, but hadn't been able to find him. And so, in a last desperate attempt, he put an ad in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven, your father. That Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. That's incredible. The need for forgiveness from our fathers to be reconciled, to be made right. Relationship with the father starts with forgiveness. And he's graciously provided a letter to you and me saying, all is forgiven. I love you, your father. That's what this is to you and me. If Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, then we should, we should learn it too. We should use this model as we pray as a roadmap to a relationship, both literally and an outline of how to approach God in a way that balances his holiness with our need. Amen. I give you my love.